please uh, open your Bible again at Luke chapter 17. <coughs> and we are going to be thinking this morning on the verses 7 to 10 of the chapter, uh, Jesus' uh, illustration of how we are to view our service uh, of him. <coughs> We've just got a, a banner outside the church now. I'm really chuffed with it, advertising our holiday club. Uh, you know, I sometimes think to myself, it would be good if we had a banner telling ourselves and others what it is uh, we are in Hope Church. And it would, if we did something like that, it would read uh, this. A bunch of sinners meet here at uh, 11 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on Sundays to worship God. That would be a great uh, message to ourselves and to others. That uh, here is no bunch of people who are perfect in any sense of the word. But people with all kinds of, of problems and things that are being resolved by the grace of God who are here uh, because of a wonderful Savior in Jesus Christ. Be a reminder to anyone who came into the church that they're not going to meet with perfection uh, here. And if they come looking for that, they're going to be hugely disappointed, sadly, because uh, we are far from perfect people. We will let down them and they in due time will let down others. Having said that, the church of Jesus is uh, a place where people uh, serve one another and are brought together so that they grow in their ultimate purpose of glorifying God. The Lord Jesus Christ has built his church as a place where people are refined, where the rough corners are knocked off us, and where we are growing into likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do that by sharing our lives alongside people who are very, very different from us, people who rub us up the wrong way from time to time, who are demanding of us, as well as people who are kind to us and forgiving of, of our failings and so on. And as we are immersed in loving and serving one another in these ways, we grow more and more like Jesus. Church is a bunch of sinners with a wonderful Saviour. Jesus' parable here about the farm servants is teaching us a very important lesson, and that is if we, in the process of the work of being together in the church, we're being made more like Jesus, then our attitude is very important. The Indian preacher I referred to earlier had a, a wonderful line <coughs> in the sermon. He said that your attitude determines your altitude. Your attitude determines your altitude. If you have the right attitude, you will soar. But with the wrong attitude, you'll die spiritually. Your attitude determines your altitude. Jesus is talking here about the right attitude with which we come to serve him. The passage follows on from the solemn teaching in chapter 16 of Lazarus and the rich man. Life is a journey with only one of two destinations at its end, heaven or hell. And therefore, we need to take our walk with God very seriously and consider how our conduct impacts on others. However, 
our sinful natures mean that we will sometimes shirk from doing the thing that Jesus tells us to do, which is to confront our brother or our sister if they are in sin and if they repent to be willing to forgive them. Jesus is telling us in the previous verses to address the sin that can lead to a trap being sprung so that people of weak faith are put off. The fact, sad fact, however, is that we often don't rise up and follow the biblical instruction of confronting sin. We like to shy away from it. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons why in the past uh, many of the the needless splits and divisions that the Presbyterian Church is notorious for have taken place because we simply haven't uh, spoken the truth in love when that was appropriate. And so we need, along with the disciples, to ask the Lord for faith that we might do the things which are necessary but are difficult to do in the church, things that require divine strength. However, having overcome our preference to doing nothing rather than something, having experienced something of the power of God entering into and helping situations, our next temptation is to think that we're pretty good to become puffed up because we have seen God at work, even through the exercise of faith. I've said it before that uh, always kind of annoys me a bit when you hear Christians uh, speaking about my faith helped me in this situation. You know, they're going through something hard and uh, <coughs> they think that they're bringing the Lord into things where they say, my, my faith helped me through this difficult time. And I feel like saying, wow, that's great. And we all thought it was God that had helped you, but instead it was my faith. You see, the net result is that attention is being brought to themselves and the fact that they've exercised faith rather than Jesus being with them in it. And the corrective to all this, the corrective to serving God and then thinking that we're something, is to having the kind of attitude that Jesus says will keep us from pride. The right attitude that will set us on the right altitude. The corrective to being proud because you think you've done something great by faith is to remember that you were created for God's glory and not the other way around. God's not there to be at your beck and call. You're there to serve him. And your attitude determines your altitude. Jesus uses an illustration which makes a parallel with the relationship between a slave and his master. Now, we need to be careful about applying this because <clears throat> that's not a full description, obviously, of our relationship with God. Uh, We're not just slaves. Paul loves to describe himself as a bondservant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are also in his glad service as bondservants. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ, our relationship to God is much fuller, richer, more intimate than that. 
Uh, we are children of the living God by adoption. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And so a relationship is much fuller. Our access is more complete. And so we need to remember that when we consider uh, the story. For the Pharisees, it was pretty much a relationship of slave to master because they thought that by, by working hard and by performing all their duties, they would have the acceptance of God. And Jesus' illustration here is showing that even on the Pharisees' own terms, it doesn't work out like that. They have no reason to expect that God is in their debt simply because they have performed well as slaves. The farm servant illustration has, has three points we can uh, take from it. First of all, <coughs> God's primary purpose is not to serve us and make us happy. Second, any service we do for God doesn't put God in our debt. And at the end of the day, thirdly, we remain unworthy servants and it's our privilege and our joy to serve God with humility. First of all then, God's not there to make us happy and serve us. Jesus illustrates this from the, the normal situation uh, in farming life in his day. Uh, the servant who did the ploughing was also responsible for domestic chores within the house. When this servant returned from being out with the oxen in the field ploughing, uh, the farmer didn't treat him with great gratitude because uh, he had ploughed the field and come back at the end of the day. No, there was more for him to do. And so he commands him to prepare his evening meal and then serve it to him. Now remember that the worker has come in and he's all hot and sweaty. Uh, he's been doing hard physical work and he's ravenously hungry and he would love uh, to sit down and have a meal before uh, doing anything else. But no, whilst he's hungry, he has to prepare a meal for his master and then clean up before serving it. And then after he's done all of that, he can attend to his own uh, needs. That's what servants do. Masters, on the other hand, are served by servants. That's the order of things. And the servant uh, doesn't look for any special recognition because he's done what servants do. That's the point of Jesus' illustration. And in the same way, we're not to think that God's role is to serve us. And that, uh, sadly, is... Although when you put it like that... Uh, Nobody would say that that's, that was the case. Actually, the idea is quite deeply ingrained in our thinking. Uh, for example, in 18th century America, <coughs> some thinkers argued that human happiness is the end or the purpose for which uh, man was created. And eventually you find that idea of getting into the American Declaration of Independence with the idea that the pursuit of happiness is a self-evident and inalienable right pursuit of happiness. The great preacher, Jonathan Edwards, the preacher, theologian, philosopher, Jonathan Edwards, who was living at the same time, a bit earlier, uh, 
saw this notion was so popular in his day that he wrote a great uh, treatise uh, which contradicted it, uh, the end for which God created the world. And Edwards argued that our chief purpose isn't to find happiness, our chief purpose is to glorify God. God's glory was the reason that he made us and all things. And he said that just as the sun, uh, by nature, sends out its light, so God's nature is to shine out and to make known all his perfections. And just as that is God's nature, our nature, our, 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 our purpose, our destiny, our end, is not only to know God's glory, but to enjoy it and delight in it. And he said, if we glorify God, we will end up being supremely happy. But that's a byproduct of pursuing God's glory. God is at the center of his universe. But if we put ourselves at the center of the universe and end up thinking that God's purpose is to make us happy, then we go really badly wrong. That's simply not the truth. Now, that works out in a whole lot of practical ways. If I think that God's purpose for me is that I should be happy, then I'm going to have a whole lot of wrong attitudes to my brothers and sisters in the church. For example, why would I speak out uh, why would I stick my neck in the block and confront somebody for something uh, that uh, is, is wrong, something which is maybe spiritually damaging them, uh, if I know that there's a good likelihood they'll take it badly and snap at me? Why would I do that if God wants me to be happy? I'm going to shirk it every time, aren't I? And what about the other side? Uh, someone who's intent on continuing in a relationship that is against the word of God and simply say, well, God wants me to be happy. So why would he deny me this? God's ultimate purpose is not to make us happy, but that he should shine forth his perfection and that we should reflect them back and glorify him. That's my purpose. And you get all kinds of work thinking springing forth from this view that God's purpose for me is that I should be happy. Another example. This big you know, same-sex marriage debate that's going on. Sadly, you see some evangelicals saying that they have had a change of mind. <clears throat> There's a book uh, recently by an American, Mark Achtemeyer, uh, entitled The Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage and Evangelical's Change of Heart. And in the book, uh, Achtemeyer writes, God's highest purpose is to help people grow in their ability to give themselves completely to another person. <laughs> Which is basically saying that God's, uh, God exists for us rather than me existing for him. Uh, it's redefining God so that his supreme job is to make us happy. And then the writer concludes that he couldn't possibly deny happiness, uh, the happiness that 
people in a same-sex marriage claim to have. But God's purpose is not to make us happy. We are not at the centre of the universe, but God is. Secondly, we're not to think that our service puts God in our debt. Jesus' story shows how ridiculous that would be. Would the master thank the servant because he did what he was supposed to do? Of course not. The servant hasn't done anything which is extraordinary. He simply does. He simply has done what servants do. Now, if we could, if we had a biblical grasp on the doctrine of sin, then uh, it would be very easy to see this. If we understood that uh, sin has actually contaminated our nature so that there's nothing that we do which can ever truly be called good in a perfect sense of that word, uh, as a good thing offered to God without any uh, imperfection, any ambiguity. What does the scripture say? There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's pretty clear. And when Jesus is confronted by a young man who uh, everyone thought was a really good young man with tremendous prospects, and the man calls Jesus good master, Jesus challenges his idea of goodness. Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God. What do you mean by good? Do you understand? Have you the faintest idea what uh, being good is? No, of course he hadn't. Our best deeds are flawed. Okay, so you you go and you visit a neighbour who is down. But even that deed, which is undeniably good in in a general sense, is flawed by the fact that you never really entered into her condition. And you're pretty keen to get back to your business. And we're thinking about that for a good part of the visit. There's always things which flaw our best deeds. And secondly, even our best deeds can't be used to get leverage on God so that it's as though God is obliged to do us some good turn. That's, that's the, the kind of attitude of the, the servant who would expect uh, thanks from his master. He's done something which now gives him leverage on his master, so his master should thank him or reward him in some way. We get into that way of thinking when we complain, when we're resentful, when things go wrong. You ever hear people saying, sadly in the church too, I don't deserve this. Maybe you've said it yourself. What did I ever do to deserve this? Implication, I have been living a pretty good life and I deserve better from God than this. Yeah? I have gained leverage over God by my good life and I don't deserve this. The, the Jewish rabbi, uh, Rabbi Krishna, who wrote the book Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, 
It's a terrible book. And the, the worst of it is all in the title. All you need to know about this book and how bad it is, is in the title. No. In other words, there are good people and there are bad things happen to good people and there's something wrong about that. And it's such a rotten book that he ends up by saying that, well, God wouldn't want this because God would always want good things to happen to good people. But he's powerless to do anything else. But at least he's with us in the bad things. Completely wrong notion. But we have this idea that if we do something good, uh, we owe, we, God owes us a reward. God owes us his thanks. And then when, when good things happen to us, it must be because we've done something good in the past. So you have that from that famous uh, theologian Maria von Trapp in The Sound of Music when she realizes that the captain has fallen for her and she goes, for there you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So, somewhere in my youth or childhood, <laughs> I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And that's it. I do something good and then God rewards me. My goodness always means, so people think, that God owes me one. And that's rubbish. That is rubbish. Ah, God is not indebted to us. Jesus is saying here, your best deeds are flawed. And even if they weren't, you're only doing what you've been created to do, serving the living God. All our best uh, is unworthy of reward or God's gratitude. And then the final and the positive point to take away is that knowing that all of that is true, Knowing that we're not at the centre of the universe, that God's purpose isn't to make me happy. Knowing that uh, my best deeds don't gain any leverage over God. I must now understand that serving God is the greatest privilege that I could have. And that my service of him is only by his power. The best I can offer him is by the strength that he gives me. And what a glorious privilege that is to serve the living God, to serve even in the most obscure or mundane, routine and unnoticed ways. And if that's the case, then I should serve him with joy, humbly and with joy. The great wonder in the end of the day is that God should use people like you and me. You know what? So often we our thinking is flawed. Our best deeds are marred by wrong motives. We don't stick at things. We mess things up. But God is pleased to use frail, fallen creatures like us. And he gives us his Holy Spirit that we might serve him. Isn't that wonderful? And our service is to the king. What a privilege. 
And you know, when, when we're tempted to, to wrongly think, I deserve better than this. I deserve more recognition. Why does nobody thank me? Does nobody realize the hours I slave away for the church? Etc., etc. What do we need to do? We need to cast our eyes upon a man in an upper room with a towel and a basin of water doing the task that was reserved for the slave. But when they went to the room, there was no slave. And none of the twelve were going to get down on their knees and do what a slave did. And so Jesus did what slaves do. And how was he rewarded? How did they thank him? One of the twelve left the meal early so he could go and betray him. And another said he didn't know him three times later that evening. Jesus has transformed what service is all about. Who being in the form of God thought equality with God not something to be grasped but made himself, humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. And then there is this wonderful thought that although we are there to serve God and not the other way around. Jesus has said, there's a day coming when he'll serve us. When that drama of the upper room will be reenacted for those who are ready at his coming. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, Jesus says. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. And he will come and serve them. I find that so hard to get my head around that but it's in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? That's ahead. And now is the time for, for humble service, joyful service, without looking for the recognition. There was a missionary couple who were coming back from Africa <coughs> on the boat, and they had no pension, their health was broken, uh, they were pretty discouraged uh, by uh, the, the last years of their service. They discovered that on the same boat there was a politician who had been on a safari in Africa. And when the vessel docked, the politician was greeted with a brass band and there were crowds there who were cheering his arrival. The missionary couple looked around, hopefully in the crowd, to see somebody that they would recognise who might be able to help them. There was nobody. They picked their way down the gangway with a heavy heart. And the husband momentarily forgot Jesus' teaching here about recognition for service and said, 
it doesn't seem fair that we should give our all in Africa only to be ignored when we come home. That man has been on a holiday shooting animals and he's welcomed by a crowd. And then his wife, who at that moment at least had a better grip on the situation, said to him, but we're not home yet. We're not home yet. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word again to us. Thank you that you are glorious. You're worthy of our service, whether we're thanked or not. Thank you for not only making us your servants, but bringing us into the circle of your family. That we might serve you as children who love their father and long to please him. Lord, keep that image of Jesus washing the feet before us when we're tempted to complain. In Jesus' name we pray.